Episode 10, Gruesome. What you're about to hear is an event that occurred during my time as a United Nations peacekeeper. Based on true and factual accounts, some details were changed due to operational security and confidentiality reasons, but not in a way to affect the veracity of this story. On one knee, and with the Glock pointing outwards, I turreted my upper body in a constant left-to-right 180-degree motion. Come on, hurry up, I called out to Mark. We can't stay here much longer. Now in a standing position, Mark straddled the body and raised his camera to take a photo just as a metal dart bounced off the bitumen at high speed, an orange spark flicking from it before it disappeared somewhere into the night. Way too close for comfort, I turned to see why Mark was taking so long and noticed the left hand of the youth was moving. In it were a number of metal darts, dog shit obvious on their tips, and it was moving towards Mark's ankle. How could he still be functioning when nearly half of his head was missing? It was late into the night, somewhere around one o'clock in the morning, and I had literally just finished a 12-hour shift. No sooner had I undone the vest and began peeling my sweat-soaked shirt off, I turned around to see Mark standing in my doorway. Eric, I need to go out again. Can I get you to ride with me? Mark was one of the guys from my contingent and I didn't even bother asking him what his need was, as all of us within the contingent would do anything unquestioningly for each other. I pulled my shirt back on, rebuttoned it, and grabbed my vest and helmet. In the car, he explained he had just received an urgent message to contact home, but no reason had been given. I could see there was a sense of urgency, but to do such a task at this time of the night, or what was technically the morning, wasn't something you'd do by yourself, as it was not a trip to be taken lightly. With only the two of us in a four-wheel drive that had UN plastered all over it, going with no other support or immediate backup and travelling in the dead of night, this would be a dangerous task. I turned out of the compound and absolutely booted it. The warm night wind began to whistle through the missing rear and side windows, and I didn't dare go much past 60 miles or 100 kilometres per hour. Driving at this speed was more difficult than you realised. We were doing a relatively high speed on a poor quality road. You've got your headlights turned off and it's totally pitch black because there's no other form of lighting out there. To get safely to our base at this time of night, we had to be careful and watchful. The one thing in our favour was the bulk of the drivers on a straight section of bitumen in, I'd say reasonable condition, which allowed us to keep our speed up but it was what surrounded us that gave us the most concern. We had to drive through open sections of ground, which allowed us reasonable observations, but there were also areas that had thick bushes to the sides, which provided easy hiding spots. There were also two intersections where I knew I was obliged to stop and give way, but all intersections were dangerous, as gangs would lie in wait to ambush a stationary vehicle. Even though our vehicle would be heard approaching, It was always best to have the headlights off so they couldn't pinpoint us. This type of trip wasn't conducted too often and it made for an eerie, fast and dangerous 12-minute drive. Uncharacteristically, the gangs were still active this night as Mark and I commented on a red glow somewhere off in the distance to our right 
where a fire of a significant size was burning. We were fast approaching the first intersection where I was obliged to stop and give way, and Mark hit me up. You're not going to stop, are you? The tone of his voice made it sound more like a statement than a question, and I quickly weighed it up. I had reasonably good vision off to my right, and as far as I could tell, there didn't seem to be anything coming, unless they too had their headlights turned off. At this speed, the intersection came quickly upon us, and I flew straight through it without dropping off any speed, and without hitting anyone. I say we didn't hit anyone, but something hit us. Some worthy-sized rock hit Mark's side of the car as it made a loud bang. I'd become so accustomed to them, I couldn't care less, as long as it missed the glass that remained, and as long as it wasn't a dart, which could easily penetrate the metal sides of the car. This is why wearing our helmets and vests was imperative, to prevent any potential injury from breaking glass or a direct strike from an unseen rock or dart. The last part of the fast ride was reasonably uneventful, except for a couple of more youths who ran into our path and threw more rocks. Fortunately, they too hit panels and missed the glass. What was a couple of more dents to the multitude of them there already? Wasn't my car. I sensed Mark's relief as we were granted access to the base, and he bolted inside to access a phone. I followed him in, happy we'd successfully run the gauntlet. I sat down next to him as he dialed the number. He listened briefly, then swore at whoever was on the other end and hung up. He turned to me, his eyes tired and heavy. Everything all right back home, I asked. Eric, how far are we from home? By plane, I don't know, a few thousand k's, 10,000 maybe. Why, what's happened? Mark looked exasperated, and I feared the worst. I remember him telling me that he had three kids at home. I just spoke to my wife, he said. She told me the dog escaped from the house and she wanted to know what she should do. I stared nonplussed at him. I had nothing. I put my helmet back on and mentally prepared myself for the return trip. She told me I should come home to find the dog Mark added as he slammed the car door closed. Fuck me. Both of us braced ourselves for the return roller coaster ride back to the compound, but little did we know. This was about to turn into one of those dreaded 16-hour shifts we'd come way too accustomed to. The fire we had seen on the way in was now burning brighter and the chatter on the police channel had increased. Even though it had been burning for some time, there were no units, so Mark and I agreed to do the right thing and take a small detour. We eventually came across a group of eight semi-detached homes, the first one already burnt down. The second one was now fully ablaze and was threatening the third. We made an urgent request for the local fire brigade to attend, but I was surprised with the response. We were told they would only leave the station if they had a security group with them, as not only were they shit scared about coming out at night, they nearly always got attacked as the gangs wanted things to burn. We asked for a detail to be put together and to get the fireys out here in a hurry. The clock ticked down, as did the second and third house by the time the fire brigade finally arrived, a UN security detail front and back. Now let me first paint you a picture of what they referred to as their local fire brigade. There had been no announcement of their arrival because by definition this wasn't even a fire truck. There were no lights or sirens, heck it wasn't even painted red. It was a repurposed 
flatbed truck that blew enough exhaust smoke as it drove that I too thought it was on fire. It had a medium-sized water tank on the rear tray and a pump which they placed manually on the ground. They would then throw a hose into the top of the tank, start the pump and use one small hose with a very small nozzle on it to point water at a fire. But it didn't end there. While I'm watching the three of them trying to get themselves organised, house number five is now alive before the pump finally gets going. The measly water flow comes on and then stops. They try restarting the pump. They check its fuel level, check the hose and nozzle, but they can't work out why the water won't flow. No matter what they tried, they just can't seem to get it going. I watch one of them climb onto the back of the truck and look inside the tank before he looked back at us and shrugs his shoulders. Turns out the water tank is empty because apparently they forgot to fill it after attending the last fire. We just stood there and watched six, seven, and then the last house burned down. The blind leading the partially sighted, said Mark. I'd had enough. I needed sleep, so Mark and I left the charred mess and headed back towards our compound, this time choosing to stay away from the main road that we had driven in on. But that was to prove a bad decision. We were travelling on a dirt back road and through the middle of a medium-sized village. Just as I was negotiating a right-hand bend, I drove straight into a rock concert and it was in full swing. Shit. I quickly shoved it in reverse and backed it up, but not before a few fast rocks came our way. Two of them managed to hit the windscreen, but thankfully they weren't big enough to smash it, and they just bounced off, leaving more chips in the glass. I turned it around and then drove parallel around the side of the village and the location of the fight to put us in a position where we could determine exactly what was going on and how big it was. Both Mark and I left the vehicle and carefully made our way between a couple of houses heading towards a fight. As we passed, older people inside the houses looked out at us, a look of fear and panic on their faces, but they knew to stay inside, protected by the relative safety of their home, and we knew they weren't a threat to us. We finally managed to creep back to the main road and found ourselves closer to one group more than the other. It was way too dark to determine which gangs they were, but apart from obtaining some intel, it didn't really matter. Our one and only concern now was to stop the fight, to stop them from trying to kill each other. I was actually surprised how big a concert it was, particularly for this time of night, and we called it in with our estimates and requested backup. Now all we could do was wait for the cavalry to arrive. Combined, they would have numbered more than a 100, and we watched the group closest to us, studying their basic but well-practiced techniques. The bulk of them would stand and throw rocks the long distance towards the other group, where the others of them would drop to a knee and load up their slingshots to release various missiles. It was a varied combination of lethal metal darts, rocks, or in some cases pieces of thick glass or bits of metal, and I was thankful most of it travelled well over our heads. However, every now and then, the odd wayward piece would hit something near us and make us tuck into our cover even more. At times, the noise became deafening, and we watched quite a number of them on both sides get struck. Some of the braver ones would run forward and drag the injured back out of the fight, only to lean them against a tree with their job changed to keeping a supply of rocks up to the throwers. Not only was the shouting loud, this village was a little more, shall I say, upmarket than the other villages further out, 
as a large number of the homes had tin roofs. Rocks would occasionally land on some of these roofs, and the noise of the impact reverberated loudly in the air just to add to the noise. We watched this go on for quite a while, until it all came to an abrupt end. A middle-aged male, three or four houses up from us, and pretty much in the middle of the two gangs that were fighting, bravely, or probably better described as stupidly, steps out of his house and walks into the middle of the dirt road. The two groups naturally took issue with this and immediately redirected their vengeance towards him. Rocks and all types of ammunition, including darts, quickly came his way, yet he stood his ground. It was too dark to initially see what he was up to, and I debated what action to take as I quickly became concerned for his safety. However, it turns out I shouldn't have worried. Well, not about him anyway. He had obviously decided to take matters into his own hands, and I watched as he raised his arm and intermittent flames began to lick out of the end of his arm. He had a handgun, and he fired multiple rounds directly into the gang furthest off to our right. I counted at least six rounds, and the youths all scattered in different directions. He then turned the other way and fired a similar number of rounds at the group closest to us before he casually walks back to his house, changing magazines as he leaves. I watched as two of the youths to our left went down before one of them managed to stand back up again and stagger away, clutching his left arm. There was no need for conversation between Mark and I as we both drew our firearms. Both of us automatically knew what we had to do and waited ever so briefly just to ensure the fighting had actually stopped before we took off along the side of the road towards the boy. We both dropped to a knee on the edge of the road directly opposite him and looked over into the darkness. He was in the middle of the road and he wasn't moving. Again, there was no need for conversation, but both of us knew going out into the middle of that open road was an exposed and dangerous position for us to be. We had a final check to our left and to our right, nodded to each other, and ran in a crouched position out to the boy. As soon as we got there, Mark went to the boy and dropped to a knee, as I did a metre or so off to the side. I say boy because I looked across and could see he was only 14, 15 years of age. He had fallen onto his back, his legs crumpled underneath him as he'd collapsed on the spot. I noticed he was wearing a very worn pair of sandals. He had long dark pants on and a white and blue horizontally striped shirt. Being on a knee, I could only see the left side of him and it wasn't clear to me where he'd been struck. Mark retrieved his torch and cupped his hand over the end before turning it on. In a filtered light, he shone it at the youth. I was very much aware that we'd left the first aid kit in the car and we were obviously going to struggle to provide any form of good quality first aid. How bad is he, I asked, keeping a close eye on our surrounds with the Glock. He's done, Mark replied. I quickly stood up and had a look across while Mark still had the torch on. The boy had thick black hair and a very young face. His eyes were open and he looked upwards towards Mark in a blank stare. Mark moved a light across to the right side of the boy's head and I could see why he'd collapsed. One of the rounds had impacted the right side of his head near his temple, yet had surprisingly left his youthful face intact. But the force of the round had removed over half of the right side of his head 
and most of the back part of his skull as it travelled its way through. He had bled out onto the road, the blood a pool of deep red fluid slowly widening around him. I'd seen a number of head wounds over the years, but what was mixed with his blood surprised me. The only way I can describe it was it looked like a hundred or so maggots had mixed in with the blood as it oozed out from the inside of his head. If he wasn't already deceased, there was absolutely no possible way he would survive this. I dropped back to a knee and continued to point the Glock outwards while I turreted my upper body in a 180-degree motion. Come on, hurry up, I called out to Mark. We can't stay here much longer. Now, I need to stop here, and I want to briefly explain that what transpires next was necessary, so we don't want to be judged. As I have explained in episode one, this is a part of the world that has very different customs to our own. One of theirs is to take immediate possession of a body should it die. As an investigator, this poses a clear problem as identity and proper investigation is very difficult should we lose possession of a victim. In this situation, which actually became very common, our instructions were to take as many photos as possible to assist with the legal process. It has to be done immediately as villagers were quick to react and they were known to take the body from under you, with force if challenged. From our point of view, this shooter needed to be brought to justice and we needed evidence to do that. And additionally, on this night, I'm no doctor, but this youth was never going to survive this injury. Mark straddled the body and raised his camera to take a photo, just as the first of a few metal darts bounced off the bitumen at high speed, an orange spark flicking from it before it disappeared somewhere into the night. It was way too close for comfort, so I turned to see why Mark was taking so long and noticed with amazement that the left hand of the youth seemed to be moving. In it were a number of metal darts, dog shit obvious on their tips, and it was moving towards Mark's right ankle. What the, I wondered? How was it possible that he could still be functioning when half of his head was missing? Mark, his hand, I called out. Having already taken a couple of photos, Mark stepped away from the body and the hand stopped. The youth released a long, slow breath and his eyes closed. Mark looked at me, an incredulous look on his face. Rocks now started coming our way and the last thing I wanted to do was fire off a couple of rounds, so we bolted back to our car. We handed everything we had over to the investigators and provided them with statements, albeit the typical brief ones. I would later hear they found the male with the firearm and successfully convicted him. But there was a small weird twist to this story. It turns out that the male they charge was legally in possession of the firearm, as he was employed as a safety officer within the Presidential Guard. His role was to provide security to those in the higher levels of government, yet on that night, It's alleged that he got tired of the rocks landing on the roof of his own home. Safety officer. I don't quite know what to say to that. If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to be informed when a new episode is posted, please follow and support me on my Instagram page, truecrime.ericwelsh. Thank you.